Welcome to Let It Lopate at Large. I'm Let It Lopate. Many of the protagonists of Judy Battalion's new book, The Light of Days, the untold story of women resistance fighters in Hitler's ghettos, are teenage girls with bare feet and, and ragged clothes. It's a little known true story of how that group of Polish ghetto girls spied, built and planted bombs, went undercover to steal and deliver weapons and, and documents, and killed Nazi soldiers. Perhaps we shouldn't be surprised that Steven Spielberg has optioned the book for a major motion picture. It's published by William Morrow and brings Judy Battalion to our show now. Welcome. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I, I'm really delighted to be here. Delighted to have you. How did you go from working in London as an art historian by day and a comedian by night to writing a book about the women in the Polish armed underground Jewish resistance? Yes, good question. How did I do that? Um, this yeah, it seems like a big leap, doesn't it? <laughs> it was a big leap taken in many steps. Um, this was a project that began really by accident. Um, it started 14 years ago. I, I, again, as you say, I was living in London and it, it was a time in my life where I was thinking a lot about my Jewish identity. Um, I myself am the granddaughter of Holocaust survivors. And I, I was thinking really about what I call the emotional legacy of the Holocaust, the way that trauma has passed over generations. In my own life, I'm, I'm a very anxious person. And it was a time in my life where everything, everything felt very dangerous to me. And I, I suddenly started wondering, you know, is this my Holocaust heritage? Had that mm. shaped how I perceived of and reacted to danger? And as you said, I was doing a lot of performing at the time. I decided to write a performance piece about this, um, about confronting danger. I, I wanted to have a, a historical figure in it, um, a strong Jewish woman. Wait, wait, wait. Did this, danger. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Did this follow your first book, White Walls, which was a memoir about your mother's compulsive hoarding disorder, which I assume also had a connection to uh, the family history? Great question. This actually started before that book, White Walls. Um, White Walls came out in 2016, and I probably started writing that in 2010, 2011. This was before all of that. Mm. Um, but as you can see, I've obviously been obsessed by these issues of the emotional legacy of the Holocaust, which White Walls also looked at how that played out in, in my own family. Um, so yes, I, you, are, you are correct. Both of these projects began really with the same kind of personal obsessional questions. So you, you started looking into the story of one of the few female resistors during World War oh. II who, ha who wasn't forgotten, Hannah Senesh. Exactly. Uh, there's, even, there's even been a film made about her. Uh, and this comes as surprising because although the Warsaw, well, okay, well, but she's a Hungarian. So how does that relate to this Polish story that you're telling? Right. So I w decided I was going to include Hannah Senesh as a character in this piece. And I had studied her in fifth grade. I knew she she had uh, moved to Palestine in the 1930s. But during the war, she decided she wanted to fight back. She joined the Allied forces, became a paratrooper volunteered to return to Nazi occupied Europe to fight the Nazis. Um, and I was very interested in this. You know, I'd always studied her as a 
as a hero, but I actually wanted to understand Hannah Senesh, not the hero, but the person who does that. What motivates that kind of audacity to, to choose to go fight the Nazis? So I was looking for a nuanced biography of Hannah Senesh, not this sort of simplistic hero narrative. I wanted to find a book of someone that really explored her personality, her psychology. Um, that led me to the British Library where I spent much of my time as an art historian. Um, and I, I just looked up Hannah Senesh in the catalog. There were not very many books about her. So I ordered whatever they had. And one of the books came back to me. It was an unusual object. Um, you could hear the art historian in me. It was, you know, it was an old, dusty book. It had a blue fabric cover with gold writing. It, it intrigued me as, a, as an object. It was from the 1940s. Um, and it was also in Yiddish. And it was called Freuen in die Ghettos, Women in the Ghettos. Um, I always say more unusual than this book was the fact that I speak Yiddish. Um, so I, I was able to, to read this. So I start flipping through this book, really kind of drawn to its, its object uh, status. Um, and looking for Hannah Senesh, I knew she hadn't even been in the ghetto. So what, what was this book about? And I, I can't even find her. She's only in the last few pages of this book. In front of her, there are you know 170 pages of small Yiddish texts about and by other young Jewish women who had fought the Nazis in primarily from the ghettos in Poland um, with chapter titles like weapons and ammunition and partisan combat. Mm. And there were photos of them and bios and writings. I, I, I was really stunned. This was just, it was just so far from any Holocaust narrative that I'd ever come across. It was so different in tone and in content than anything I, I'd ever read. And that's how this all began. Well, the Warsaw Ghetto leader, Emanuel Ringelblum, praised the women uh, who got involved and said their place in history was certain. And although they operated in more than 90 Eastern European ghettos from Vilna to Krakow, why do you think their stories had been largely forgotten and only uh, were there in that one dusty book uh, in one library, uh, even though it's a major library, but only one library in the world. Well, the book you can find in other libraries. In fact, I even purchased a copy from an oh. antiques dealer online. So it, it was, was published right book. after the war. Yes, it was published in 1946 in New York in Yiddish. It, its mm. intention of the book was to tell American Jews what had happened. This this great story of young Jewish women in the war. Um, which is why it was in Yiddish. I, I only found out later that it, it had been, it was actually like a scrapbook of other pieces that had been published largely in Hebrew, some in Polish, um, and then and about and by these women. And then this, this editor translated them into Yiddish for the American audience. Um, Haven't some writers been reluctant to celebrate these women because they that might lead to uh, judging those who didn't resist uh, a, a form of, of blaming the victim? Yeah, you asked before why the story hasn't been told. And mm. I, I think there are well, a also they're women. Of reasons. Yeah, there are a number of reasons that the story of women in the Holocaust has been undertold. And the story of Jewish resistance in the Holocaust has been undertold. Um, there's could have been this prevailing myth of, of Jewish passivity in the Holocaust that I too had had 
imbibed unconsciously. I, I hadn't even been aware that I, I felt that way until I came across this and was like, wait, what is this story? Um, so one of the reasons, yes, I do think there is some discomfort about, um, especially now in the past 10 years, let's say about talking about, or even longer than that, about talking about those who, who fought or took up arms to fight because that, that implies that those who didn't were somehow mm. wrong, um, which is never my, my intention, certainly. The, the Polish ghetto girls you've written about, uh, some of them are as young as 15 or 16, uh, could, they have, uh, could they have escaped instead of, uh, of, of fighting the Nazis? Some of them could have escaped. Some of them had escaped. Um, one of the characters I write about, Frumka Plotnitska, at the beginning of the war, she was, she was a leader in the youth movements in, in Poland already. She was 25. And the youth movements told all their members to flee east. In fact, that's how my grandparents survived. They fled east. And um, Frumka left, and so did Zivia. These were two women who had been already leaders in the Polish community, Polish Jewish youth community. They fled east. They passed. They were in um, what was then Belarusian territory. They, they made it to safety. Um, but both of them chose to come back. Frumka first. She felt that she just, she, she was a leader of the people, and they needed her. And she smuggled herself back into mm. Nazi-occupied Poland, um, went to Warsaw, and, and, and was a leader still in the Warsaw Ghetto. Now, we're talking about women who are active in a number of cities. Were they in contact with each other, or was this all independent work activity? Yeah, it's a great question. The, the groups that I write about, by and large, were in contact with each other. And that is because they... they were parts of organizations that existed before the war. As I, as I was saying about these women, they were um, leaders of the youth movements. And mm -hmm. these youth movements were what became these fighting groups in the ghettos. These youth movements existed in Poland in the 1930s. A, a huge number of Jewish youth, by which I mean people in their late teens, early 20s, were members of youth movements. Um, before the war, and they were connected throughout the country before the war. And it was these movements that then became um, resistance cells inside many of the ghettos. And so they were already connected. They knew that there would be no mercy if they were captured, only torture and death. But did they do some amazing things like bribing executioners, smuggling weapons, ammunition and dynamite, making fake IDs, uh, some of which you actually show uh, uh, in some of the photographs in, in the, uh, the book, uh, sabotaged German supply lines, smuggled money and medicine into the ghettos, inside teddy bears, handbags, and loaves of bread. It's just incredible stories. I mean, every story blew me away. Every story was so full of life, mm -hmm. <laughs> ironically, but so full of life and movement and passion and activity. Um, I, I, there was no dearth of material to work with. 
these stories were so dramatic. And I include examples of women working in the underground, ranging from yeah, those who ran soup kitchens and underground schools and secret, even at secret summer camps and performances and secret presses, and they printed bulletins, they would, they would smuggle them by hiding them braided in their hair, uh, all the way through to women who um, blew up Nazi trains mm. and shot Gestapo men in the head and were fighters in ghetto uprisings, flinging Molotov cocktails, exploding tanks. And they also spied for Russian military intelligence, helped hundreds to escape the labor camps. And and, f and as you say, they, they, they flirted with Nazis before they shot and killed them? Uh, some of them did. You know, everyone had a different role, but there, you know, one one story of this woman, Yusha Teitelbaum, she was in her early 20s. She'd had a degree in history from Warsaw University. She was part of the communist youth movement and she got involved in the underground right away. And her she would pretend to be a Polish peasant girl. She would braid her hair and put on peasant clothes uh, and sneak out of the ghetto. That's what many of these women did. They pretended to be Christian. They snuck out of the ghetto and she would go to Gestapo headquarters, Gestapo apartments and, you know, pretend she, in one case, she pretended she, she was pregnant. She wanted to talk to her, her, her boyfriend. This was at the Warsaw, at Zusha, the Warsaw Gestapo office. The guards let her in and she uh, went into the office and just shot the man in the head and walked out and sort of waved goodbye to everyone. They thought she was a, a meek peasant girl. Yeah. Um, it really, and she, she was nicknamed Little Wanda with the braids. She was on every Gestapo most wanted list. Well, you say that uh, they had to pass for Polish Catholics. Wasn't that easier for women than men because uh, they weren't circumcised or they didn't have physical markers for their Jewishness on their bodies as, as men did? And you also say that uh, the way they were educated played a role. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, a lot of the women who I write about had this role called, they were called courier girls. Um, and they were the ones to slip in and out of ghettos and connect all these movements in these different ghettos in different cities. And they, you know, smuggled, as you say, guns, weapons, they brought them into the ghettos, fake IDs, money, supplies, they smuggled Jews, they took them out of labor camps and ghettos and brought, they did all their work on the outside, on the Aryan side, where if a Jew is normally killed, found outside the ghetto, they would be killed immediately. But these young women pretended to be Christian, and it was easier for women to pretend to be Christian, um, as you say, they were not circumcised, but also in the 1930s, education in Poland was mandatory for everyone, boys and girls. But in many of these Jewish families, they often sent their sons to private Jewish school. And to save on tuition, they sent daughters to Polish public school. And it is in these Polish public schools that these girls who then became these ghetto fighters um, learnt really ha ha learned about Catholicism. They were more acculturated. They were more assimilated. They had Catholic friends. They were familiar with the habits, the prayers, the mores. They, you know, they understood, you know, you, there were differences gesticulating that was considered very Jewish. One of them talks about how she had to wear a muff when she was performing her Christianity because it kept her hands together. Um, they understood these differences in behavior, 
and the nuances of, of, of habit. And also they learned to speak Polish. They always talk about this like a pole without mm. the creaky Yiddish accent. So they were able to communicate on the outside, even if a Jewish man in the underground had to leave the ghetto to carry out a mission. He almost always took a woman, went with him, um, and she did all the talking because his accent would, would have often been too noticeably um, Jewish. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at large here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org, is Judy Battalion, B-A-T-A-L-I-O-N, not uh, a military way. Um, her book is The Light of Days, The Untold Story of Women Resistance Fighters in Hitler's Ghettos. Uh, didn't some uh, of the women study chemistry to learn how to create bombs and grenades out of out of pipes and, and coal powder and sugar? It, I mean, they were a, a number of them. They found uh, they call them recipe books. One one woman, she was part in Vilna. She was part of a group that smuggled Jewish books to save books. Jewish books were also being burnt. They, they were out lot. And in her smuggling activity, she found a guide to how to make guerrilla weapons that had been used. It, it was from some Finnish war. Um, and they used that uh, as a book, as a recipe book to, to try to make homemade explosives. Um, they found, they, you know, learned recipes from contacts in the Polish resistance. They tried to create you know, as best as they could in a, in a basement or in a room in a ghetto, a kind of makeshift laboratories with whatever knowledge or education and supplies that they could possibly find. And you write that in time, the bombs uh, the women made were often better than the ones that they could purchase elsewhere. That, that's what they said. <laughs> that's well, what they wrote about. Around 30,000 Jews joined partisan units in, in European forests, including many women. But were they always treated with respect by their male comrades? Well, there are different groups. If you're talking about the forest partisans, that's a slightly different story than the ghetto fighters, mm -hmm. um, which is what I focus primarily on in my book. In the ghetto fighters, it, that I'm right about primarily these were, as I say, these were often um, people that knew each other already from youth movements before the war. There was some, say, gendered uh, uh, antagonism, perhaps is the right word. I'm not even sure. They, you know, there were a number of cases of, of where I did read that women complained that they weren't allowed into some of the main meetings, even though they were leaders in these movements. This was this upset them. Um, I read a couple of things, or the woman that was allowed in all the strategy meetings, she wasn't given a formal title or that kind of thing. So those did, that did come up, um, the woman's position in planning committees in some of these ghetto undergrounds. Um, but it didn't come up very often. In, in the story of the partisans in the forest, and, and, and this, this is uh, largely when Jewish women escaped from, from their towns, from ghettos, and again, pretended to be Christian and joined non-Jewish partisan mm. uh, detachments. Um, 
and often here the, there was a lot of it was very challenging to be a woman a woman had to a detachment wouldn't take a woman unless she was extremely had some extreme talent like if she was a doctor or a nurse or really was able to help them in the fight or if she was very beautiful and then she would become a they would call them the commander's wartime wives and there was this kind of dynamic where a woman found a man and in the partisans and he they would sleep together literally next to him he would protect her with his gun in the night and she would participate in, in partisan activity, usually kind of supportive cooking, cleaning, sewing um, during the day. Uh, there were some women though who were partisan combat fighters, saboteurs, um, and, and went out on missions with the partisans. And I, of course I include their very incredible stories as well. And and for the women in the cities, they did some really interesting other things that you don't think about it. Uh, when you think when you think about the resistance to the Nazis, women hand dug a labyrinth of underground bunkers in some of the cities. Uh, they attacked the electrical grid. Yeah, they I mean, these bunkers were hiding places. They were, you know, they 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 made very elaborate bunkers with, you know, uh, food supplies and they, they dried out bread so that they would have it available. They had water supplies. They had electrics installed. Um, they these were places where Jews would hide or hope to hide during liquidations, during times when Nazis came into the ghetto and, and took all the Jews to be killed. Um, they did all, yes, they did all kinds. They did in um, Vilna, they, they blew up the electric supply and this, this shut down the city, this, this you know, hampered Nazi activity in the city for some time. Did they help people to escape the death camps? So they, I, I focus primarily on women who were able to, because I write about the um, Keshariot, the, I mean, the career girls in Hebrew, Keshariot connectors, because they connected all these ghettos and camps. They, I, I write about how they were able to take Jews, children as well, and adults, and take them out of ghettos. They snuck them out of ghettos as well as forced labor camps. I wrote about a number of instances of this and bring them to the forests to, for, to find safety in the forests, with usually with a partisan detachment, or in the cities, they would find them um, hiders, Poles, Catholic Poles who would hide Jews and they would pay them and they would um, bring, bring their charges, medical help or even books or paper, spiritual help, to, something for them to do while in hiding all day. Um, so they did, they did help in, in those ways. In the concentration camps, the death camps, I write about some resistance activities that happened at Auschwitz. Here was much more difficult for someone on the outside. I mean, it was difficult mm -hmm. everywhere, but here to come in and, and, and take someone out. But I write about it, a case where 30 Jewish women who were in forced labor in Birkenau um, banded together through a, a very complicated anonymous network and stole gunpowder from the weapons factory where they were being forced to work. And they stole this gunpowder. They put a tiny bit in, in a box and then another woman would come collect it and go to the bathroom and she'd wrap it in a bit of paper and stuff it in, in her bosom, in her body. And then they would go through and they would collect this gunpowder. And it was given over to the men's side and it was used to create explosives to blow up a crematorium. Wow. 
Well, you said that there were quite a, a number of interesting stories. So how did you choose which women to include uh, and which ones to leave out? Yes, that's the big question. Um, that was really difficult because I, you know, when I first found that Yiddish book, that Yiddish book listed, you know, several dozen women who were involved in the resistance and I, in this organized resistance, and I assumed that was it. But as I went to research each of them and read their memoirs and their testimonies, you know, each of them would mention 20 more women and then 20 more women and 20 more women. And it mushroomed out so that, you know, I had a list of hundreds of women that were involved in Poland in this organized resistance activity. And it was, you know, it was not possible for me to include everything. So I really, I wanted to show um, the breadth of activity. So as I said, you know, resistance that took on different forms from creating a secret lending library um, all the way to, you know, uh, warfare. Um, and I, I also wanted to show, I wanted to include figures who were from slightly different backgrounds. I, you know, I think there's sometimes in the, in grouping together of Polish Jewry in our imaginations or my imagination, I imagined everyone to be quite similar. Um, perhaps, you know, from a shtetl working class, but actually these figures were very diverse. Some of them were from very assimilated and wealthy families. Some of them were from small towns and religious families. And some of them were middle-class and, and, you know, educated and, and worked. And so I, I also wanted to include a, a range of, of backgrounds of who these women were. And you focus a lot on an 18 year old weapons smuggler, Renia Kukielka. Would that be how I pronounce her name? I and think you so, but you did, you did a good job, yes. You describe her as uh, neither an idealist nor a revolutionary, but a savvy middle-class girl who happened to find herself in a sudden and unrelenting nightmare. Yes, many of the women that I wrote about that I came across, as I said, they'd been part of these youth movements before the war. And these youth movements all had strong politics and uh, strong um, philosophies. And many of the ones that I write about were socialist. Mm -hmm. And the, the people who, who survived and wrote their tales wrote in a in very um, political ways. They're writing, even of their, their daring experiences in the war are sort of written through very strong socialist um, uh, worldview through that lens. Renya was too young to be part of the youth movement. She was actually 14 when Hitler invaded. Um, and she was herself not a particularly political person. She herself would say that her, her sisters and brothers were part of these movements, um, and, and, but she, she wasn't. Um, and, and I think partially because of that, her writing, her writing was very narrative and very detailed. It had a um, directness to it that felt very contemporary to me. And I, I think I connected to her in a sort of writerly fashion. I, I felt I understood her. She wrote in a way that I felt was very relatable to a contemporary audience. And, and that's part of why I selected her. Yeah. Well, she was inspired by a particular incident in uh, following when the, the Germans came uh, to the Polish town of Schmelnik. Is it Schmelnik? 
Link, uh, in, in, in September 1939 and burned or shot a quarter of its people. And she saw only one Jewish boy try to confront them. So uh, that uh, inspired her to join the resistance. I think so. I think it was a number of of things, but that was one thing that she wrote about very early on in her in her memoirs about seeing that boy run out and and try to confront the Nazis on his own. Um, I, I think that was one element that that really affected her. Yes. So she did amazing things. She dis- disguised herself as a Catholic girl, went through the ghetto borders with weapons and cash strapped to her torso, smuggled sick youth, planned rescue operations, masterminded her own escape from a Gestapo prison. Wow. Yeah, I don't want to give it away. You have to, oh, okay. you have to, you have to get the book, say... but it's, <laughs> it's an well, incredible I story. Re- yeah. I do want to reveal that when she was captured by the Gestapo, they asked her, don't you feel it's a waste to die so young? And she answered, as long as there are people like you in the world, I don't want to live. But she, she was did live. very bold. She did she live. Lived, she survived until 90, despite all of that. How did she survive? Oh, you're going to tell that in the book. I, I mean, <laughs> I can tell you a little bit. Um, uh, you mean, how did she actually survive? She, I, I, she did. She, um, she was caught. And when she was caught, Many of these women, as I mentioned, they pretended to, they, they, on their missions, they were pretending to be Christian. And when Renya was caught, she continued this performance. She continued this pretense. Um, and so, it, and, and no, one, no one suspected otherwise. They assumed that she was a operative of the Polish resistance, um, not Jewish. Um, and they, so they, brought her to, she was imprisoned in extremely brutal political prisons as a Polish resistance fighter. And she was brutally tortured. They were trying to get information out of her about the Polish resistance. And uh, she, she did not break in torture. As, as you quoted before, she was, she was very tough. Um, and she managed to, uh, to, to break out of this prison. She used her, her smarts and her charms in a, in a, in a plan to, to connect her back with the underground and break out of the prison and literally flee by, by you know, running. Um, and she, uh, she ended up on an underground railroad that um, took her through Slovakia as she crossed the border through Slovakia and then through Hungary and then made her way um, out of Europe through there. And wound up in Palestine like many of the uh, the other survivors. Um, to give an idea of how tough she was, her son told you that his mother didn't look left, right, uh, and then left again before she crossed the street. She just crossed the street without a second thought. This was to me, you know, he told that to me in passing. and But to me, that was one of the anecdotes that I, I felt was the most compelling in, in describing her character. Through all this work, I always wanted to understand what, what oh, as we started with Hannah Sanish, what motivates this kind of audacity? Who can be like this? I don't think I can be like this. So I wanna understand people who, who can, they fascinate me. And 
uh, in talking to her son, that was, that was one way he kind of in passing described her to me. And I thought, wow, that's a great, that description. She's someone, he said, she, you know, she crossed the street. She doesn't look left and right and left and right. She just crossed the street. She's a woman of action and someone who has a very strong sense of themselves, like a sense of their, a connection to their God, a sense of instinct perhaps. And, um, I felt that a number of women that I wrote about shared these traits, which, by the way, are very different from my own. I look left and right and left and right again and left again and right again. So I, I am not. Well, you like live that. in New York now, don't you? Yeah. So you better look right. That's true. That's true. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. <laughs> Przecież biegł czas Siedziała i myślała Myślała jak napisać do niego I że pisze ostatni już My guest on today's Leonard Lopez at Large is Judy Battalion. Her latest book is The Light of Days, The Untold Story of Women Resistance Fighters in Hitler's Ghettos. It is published by William Morrow. Um, another woman you profile is Vitka Kempner, who was a partisan leader in Vilna. Um, t- tell, me, tell us a bit about her story. Oh, Vitka Kempner is such a fascinating figure to me. She, so her... I'll just start with she was about 19 when the Nazis invaded her village. They locked all the Jews in the synagogue, um, presumably to send them away and kill them. And she climbed out the bathroom window and basically made it largely by foot and and however she could across um, the country to Vilna, where she was, again, immediately, she'd been in the youth movements before, immediately part of the underground. And she, um, she, she, they used to say about her, she, ha- she looked very Jewish, um, but she, that didn't matter. She had so much confidence. She posed as Christian anyway. She dyed her hair. There's many stories about how the hair dyeing never worked out well, <laughs> um, but she tried to dye her hair and to look more Christian. And she you mean I become mean, was, a blonde. Yes, dyed her hair Hold blonde. Up. It came out red, or she would dye her hair, and then the roots didn't come out well. And then so there were a lot of stories, a lot of stories about this, about the disguise, about the cosmetic mm. disguise. Um, she was a leader in, in the Vilna ghetto. And then when the ghetto was no longer and the underground found themselves fighting in the forest, she was a leader in the forests as well. Um, she, in the summer of 1942, the head of the underground, there were a few heads of the underground, but it was actually the man she ended up marrying, um, sent her out on a, on a mission. He said, you're going to blow up a uh, Nazi train. And she left the ghetto. She was very, very skinny. And she there's mentions that she would slip out between the gates at late at night. And she went to each night for weeks to explore the tracks and try to find the exactly the, the right spot um, where she could put a bomb and where um, it wasn't too close to the ghetto so the Jews wouldn't be blamed. 
um, a place where she could get to in time and come back to. And she, she found this right spot. And one night she went out with a few other Jews from the underground. She led them over the rooftops this time and they brought a makeshift bomb with them. And she planted it on the tracks and blew up the train. And uh, apparently this it was the first such act of um, a, a partisan blowing up a German train in all of occupied Europe. So she was commanding male and female fighters on the front line. Yes, when, when that's she was a commander when they were in the forests. She mm. was a partisan unit commander. Well, th there were people who were stuck in the ghettos. Uh, they they had no idea what was going on, right? Because they weren't allowed radios or newspapers. So, did they just stay and and hope to live out the war? Well, we're talking about millions of people, so there are different responses. In the ghettos, they were not allowed to have newspapers. They were not allowed to have radios. This was part of the Nazi plan um, to cut off communication. Um, Jews didn't know what was going on. In fact, it was often these young Jewish women, these courier girls, these kashariot connectors, who would slip out of the ghettos and go between the ghettos and provide information. They would, one of their earliest roles in the war was they would bring news and tell people what was happening, what the Nazis plan was. Um, many times they were not believed. Many times they were ignored. Many times they were believed and, and, and some people did join the fight or did flee. Um, Many times people didn't want to hear the truth. And I, I also, this was, you know, these were thriving uh, Jewish communities. They were, you know, urban, often, you know, of, of working middle, upper class communities who had been living in Poland for over a thousand years continuously. And they'd experienced anti-Semitism for a long time. That wasn't new. So they almost couldn't fathom this, this idea of a genocide. They, this made no sense. That it, it made no sense. How would you kill all the Jews of Warsaw? So there was a lot of, a lot of struggle with, with accepting that truth. And uh, you write about the 1943 Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, which was the largest revolt by Jews against the Nazis. Um, Around 750 young Jews between the ages of 17 and 25 from uh, a, a number of different youth movements came together. And, and a third of them were women. Yes, a third. Well, there were 700. So the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, which I, I had always heard of since I was younger. But to be honest, I never really knew what it was or what happened. The Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, like most of what I write about in this book is a story of, it, this was a youth uprising. These were youth movements that came together and eventually it, they had to hard a hard time coming together because as I said, they were very politically minded and some of them really didn't agree with each other. So about 500 um, young Jews were of the, so, more of the socialist secular background and they, they were one unit. And then there were 250 Jews in the um, uh, more religious 
um, right wing background. And they, the two groups, all, they, they, they didn't even get along even in the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, but they fought at the same time, side by side. Um, I focus on the group of the socialist secular Jews and they, uh, of that group, a third were women and they're fighting you. This was a very organized uprising. They had strategy meetings. They thought about how they were going to push off the Nazis when they came to liquidate the ghetto again. They um, created weapons. They purchased weapons. They had links with the Polish underground. And each unit had about 20 people. And your unit was based on your youth movement, your specific socialist secular youth movement. And these movements work together and each one had a different role um, in, in the uprising. Some of them were um, uh, lit, set out bombs and used explosives. Some of them were fighting. They had a strategy to fight from the rooftops. Um, they then shifted strategy. Some of them, they let Nazis invade the buildings and then they would jump out of closets um, and attack them and steal the guns. So it was very thought through. Uh, I mean, as much as they could in that context. And yes, it was it was young people doing the fighting. These people were men and women, you know, 17, 18, uh, you know, maybe the older ones were 25, 26. And you tell the story of one woman who'd climbed onto the roof of a low rise building and lit in an explosive. And she could hear the Germans expressing shock that a woman was fighting in the uprising. Yeah, she tells this amazing story that she climbed on the roof and her fingers were shaking. She was so nervous and so excited and she lit this explosive and threw it down. And what the Germans scream is, Ein Frau Kampft, Ein Frau Kampft, a woman is fighting. Um, that's what shocked them. They're, they're, the, the fact that women were not suspected of being underground operatives was part of what uh, allowed them to do the work they did throughout this this whole war, throughout this time. All this work went with them on the outside. A lot of it was because they were underestimated. Nazi culture was classically sexist. Why would that pretty young woman have a revolver in the teddy bear? Um, in, in fact, some of my favorite stories are, you know, when uh, someone, uh, the courier Lanka Kajabrodska, who was traveling the country nonstop, she was very educated. Um, she spoke seven languages. She had been, had several degrees and she, you know, she went up to, she had a bag full of contraband material and she, you know, thought in a moment's note, you know, she didn't want to get caught with it. So she went up to the Gestapo man near the train and, and said, oh, my bag is so heavy. Can you please carry it for me? And, you know, he, 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 she was very beautiful. He enjoyed this flirtation. Of course he carried it for her. So those kind of stories come up all the time. Now, the, the Soviet Union didn't get into the war until Hitler invaded the Soviet Union, but were they already, did they have a presence in Poland at this time? I'm not sure what you mean, the, the Soviets? Well, the Russians, you know, uh, were, was, were they also uh, around? Uh, were these women spying for them? So in the East, <laughs> this is like another three hour conversation, mm -hmm. um, but it, it gets so complicated. Um, in the East, some of these um, 
women, I'm thinking in particular, there was a group of women in Bialystok and they, um, there were 17 or 18 Jewish women who lived, they were part of the underground. They lived outside the ghetto. They pretended to be Christian girls. They got day jobs, usually working as housekeepers for Nazi families. And by night they, they did underground work. And they helped arm the Bialystok ghetto, but they also did work for the local, um, uh, the the Red Army, who was in the forests nearby. They helped um, arm the Red Army. They created an anti-fascist league where they brought anti-Nazi Germans who had been based in Bialystok and who wanted to help. And they took their weapons. They got them weapons and they, these Jewish girls would bring them to the forest and help the red army. Um, And the red army, when they wanted to liberate Bialystok needed some information about where weapons stores were. Um, They, and, and it was these, um, Jewish girls who did the intelligence work and created maps for the Red Army and enabled them to liberate Bialystok. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is Judy Battalion. Her the book that we're discussing is The Light of Days, the untold story of women resistance fighters in Hitler's ghettos, published by William Morrow. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Did the teenage fighters, the ones that you spoke to later, did they tell you they expected to survive considering that they were fighting brigades and troops and, and Nazi tanks? So I didn't speak to any of, I only spoke to one and, and she wasn't, by the time I started doing this work, she was over a hundred. So it was hard to have a a nuanced conversation with her, but for the most part, I got my information from testimonies and memoirs and diaries, some of which were written during the war. And I can tell you, they, especially, I mean, in Warsaw, they expected to die. They, thought they were going on suicide missions much of the time, not all of the time, but in the Warsaw ghetto, they, they did not think they would live at all. In fact, the underground, they had um, warned other Jews, you know, you prepare bunkers, you know, get bunkers ready. So when they, when the liquidation comes, you go in the bunker, you hide, make sure you have supplies the underground themselves did not prepare bunkers for themselves. They assumed they would be killed immediately in the fighting. Um, so when they did survive, they were stunned. They couldn't believe that they, they had fought back and they were still alive. And, and in fact, they, they, they had nowhere to go. They had to ask, can I come into your bunker <laughs> to, to, other, uh, to other Jews, civilians, all civilians. Um, and, and, and um, they, they hadn't even planned food or, or water supplies for themselves. They were so sure they would be killed. Well, they uh, had to put their lives on, on hold. Um, they had Some of them were training for their careers, and now their lives had taken on a whole new direction. Yeah, especially because I write about people in, in that age group. They were you know, late teens, early 20s, this, the war was the time in their lives where they, you know, should have, should have, you know, had a career, studied for a career. As I said, many of them were in university um, 
or, or found, found a mate, um, you know, had a, started a family perhaps, even though in Poland women, they, they had families later at that time, but still these were, you know, foundational years in becoming an, an adult. And that was all lost to the war. Now the, the Nazis also burned down the ghetto. Um, that, so it wasn't just a matter of uh, people being shot uh, they uh, were, were men, did many die trapped in their homes? So what happened in Warsaw, um, to go back to the Warsaw ghetto uprising is they, they, the Jews, um, the, the fighters survived. They were shocked that they had survived. They moved into other bunkers, but, uh, the Nazis realized that the, that their kind of, um, I don't know what you would call land, land warfare, sending troops in wasn't working because the Jews were fighting back. Um, so they decided to change tactic and burn the ghetto down. Hmm. And one of the leaders, Zivia Lubetkin of the Warsaw ghetto uprising, she, she said, we were prepared to fight Germans. We were not prepared to fight fire. And they, um, they, they, they simply could, they, you know, they stayed underground. They tried to stay away from, from the fire and the smoke as much as they could, but many of them were killed in the burning of the Warsaw ghetto. And the, the ones who survived, survived because they escaped via sewers. Um, mm. There were sewers in, in Warsaw and they went down into the sewer system and other, you know, incredibly dramatic stories of escapes from sewers. Yeah. Didn't most of the survivors immigrate to Palestine after the war? Oh. Um, a number of the people that I wrote about did. Um, a number of them are also in North America. I, I met with families here in the U.S. and in Canada as well. You, in fact, you say you grew up in Montreal surrounded by Holocaust survivor families. Did they talk about what they'd gone through? And did your grandparents? So you're asking me personally? Um, yes. Personally, yes. I grew up in Montreal, which had a very high number of Holocaust survivors in terms of, uh, in, in sort of overall percentage of the Jewish community. It was a very much a post-Holocaust community. Um, and my, it was my mother's side of the family that were survivors. And I went to a Jewish day school um, where I mean, perhaps a majority of my friends were grandchildren of survivors. It was very common in our experience. And we learned about it in school from a very young age. Um, the Holocaust formed a, a big part of the school curriculum. Um, in my own family, my grandmother did talk about it quite a bit. My grandfather never talked about it, but my grandmother did. Um, she, it she told various snippets of stories here and there. We, we never, and I later learned this is common, we, we never had a, a, a sort of grand narrative. The, the sort of overall story, we don't, no one in my family can put together, um, but there's little anecdotes that, have, that she shared and, and she did talk about it quite a bit, yes. We don't have much time left, but a listener, Jeffrey, uh, just wrote, did the Jewish fighters in Warsaw get much, not much, or no help from the Gentiles in Warsaw during the battles? 
Well, thank you for that question, Jeffrey. Uh, that's, that's, again, another hour-long conversation. <laughs> the relationship between the Jewish underground and the Polish underground is very complicated. And it's something I touch on a little bit in my book. There were two Polish undergrounds, um, and they themselves, they didn't get along with each other. One um, was uh, the people's um, the home army, one was the people's army. The people's army was a more communist branch. Um, and the home army was the more nationalist Polish branch. And they had a government running out of London at the time. And th there were different collaborations and connections at different times with these different branches of the Polish underground. Um, and and as I, the Jewish underground, too, as I mentioned, had a lot of infighting. All these different groups had different ideas and different politics. So you're dealing with a lot of different groups that even though they all opposed the Nazi occupation, it, it, they didn't always get along with each other. Um, um, among the Jewish groups, with the non-Jewish groups, among each other, there was a lot of um, adversity. But... In the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, the Polish underground did supply the Jewish underground with a number of weapons. Yes, with, a, a, with, with, um, with, with uh, guns and, and with weaponry. The, Judy, the we're pretty much yeah. out of oh, time. <laughs> no, it's okay. But has Steven Spielberg begun working on the film? Uh, I, we, they commissioned a screenplay and I am uh, co-writing it right now. Huh. Okay, I look forward to seeing it. Meanwhile, we have the book, The Light of Days, The Untold Story of Women Resistance Fighters in Hitler's Ghettos, published by William Morrow. Uh, previous book is White Walls, a memoir about motherhood, daughterhood, and the mess in between. And you're also, you've also written for The New York Times, The Washington Post, The Forward, Vogue, many other publications. So I guess you're a writer these days. I guess so. <laughs> well... Thank you so much for being on our show. It's been a great pleasure talking with you. Thank you Fascinating so much for story. having me. Thank you. And, and that brings us to the end of today's show. If you'd like to hear more of our unique one-hour interviews, you can access our archive of over 500 shows at WBAI.org. We're also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else that podcasts are available. Or you can find links to all of our past shows on our website, leonardlopateatlarge.com. If you'd like to write me, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to take just a moment to ask you to support the station. If you care about Leonard Lopez at large and all of the other great programs on WBAI, we need your help to keep this whole thing going during these financially trying times. So please step up and make a contribution at whatever level you're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950. Do it right now uh, to to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. And, and also consider becoming a sustaining member of the station, what we call a BAI buddy. The number again, 212-209-2950, or go online to give to WBAI.org. But please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And a big thanks to everyone who's helping keep, you, keep us on the air with their generosity. We're off uh, for the next couple of days tomorrow uh, for a special on George Floyd, but I hope you'll join us for Thursday's show when former Assistant Attorney General for the District of Columbia, Ron James Jr., will discuss his new book, 
the Truman Court, Law and the Limits of Loyalty. We'll see you then.